Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the fishtail story with my friend Mark Held. How's it going, Mark? I am doing so great. How are you, Joe? <laughs> doing great. I'm glad we finally hit record because we're just going to blather off until the end of time. So, a very interesting guy. So, Mark, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. So good morning. I'm Mark. So great to, to, to finally, you know, talk with you. I run a company called Fishtail. And long story short, we finance trade. We tend to finance things for small businesses in emerging markets and all that, all that great stuff. Just kind of giving folks the, the working capital that they need to actually do their jobs. And we also enable the logistics companies that move goods to provide that financing. But I guess, you know, in a nutshell, I'm a, I'm a computer scientist by trade. I've you know started and sold a couple of companies in the world of supply chain intelligence. Uh, the first one, I started a, a company called Weft, which started out tracking shipping containers for shipping lines. And <laughs> that turned out to be a, a, a huge mistake because it turns out that in the world of, of container tracking, you know, you've got all these big shipping lines that are shipping air all over the place and they don't know. They don't know where their containers are. So when Walmart says, hey, right. I want 3,000 containers here on this day, you know, you got to move the containers to, to actually get, you know, the, the stuff going. Before we get into your that background, I think we can talk about your, all the companies you've started. You've done very well with that and, and, and actually left on uh, with acquisitions as opposed to just closing the doors. But so where'd you grow up? Right. That's important. Uh, so I grew up just outside of Boston in a, in a town called Newton. I, you know, went to school in Boston, lived All in California right. for a bunch of years. But, you know, Boston, Boston is always my home. Well, what took you to California? Oh, God. So I had uh, I had just shut down a shitty little startup. I had done not all of my startups have, have exited. I, I had just shut down some. You some exited, just not not happily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and eventually I was in California for, for something called the Quantified Self Conference. It's basically a bunch of nerds that like track their, their you know, health and, and whatnot. And, and, you know, it was in San Francisco. Well, that's a big deal on the West Coast. My, my, I have a daughter and son-in-law in Portland, and they do that biohacking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, do you know, they're like, Joe, do you know what your heartbeat is? I was like. It's beating. <laughs> I'm worried. <laughs> well, I mean, this is like a, a big part of industrial engineering. Like, you can't change something if you can't measure it. So the hypothesis is you just put, you know, a bunch of sensors on your body, and you get to be the best you you can be. Right. And so, so I, I ended make up sure this, I slept right. <laughs> yeah, it's important. And, and and so I ended up at this conference, and I just you know fell in love with the Bay Area, and I canceled my return flight. And I just, you know, ended up living out there and stayed at a hacker hostel, which was particularly fun. I think. You know, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's basically an apartment with like 20 nerds in it. It was great. Like we we definitely were, were, were you know, butting up against a bunch of health code violations. I, I swear it got so bad that they eventually <laughs> tore down the building because I, I was driving by and, and, you know, years ago, like. After I had moved out of the thing, like I, it just became a plot in the in the ground, and this is in downtown San Francisco. Uh, so, granted, you know, half of it could be, you know, health code violations, and the other is just you know, real estate developers. But you know, I yes, like the story. Exactly. It, was, it was gross. 
So you you grew up in the East Coast, and you would you study? Do you go off to college? Yeah, I I dropped out of school. So I I had started out as a computer engineer, which is kind of this weird in between between electrical and computer science. And then I I had a professor that I love it is one of my intro engineering classes and she happened to be an industrial engineer and so basically after i had her class i switched over into industrial engineering did the whole six sigma thing and and realized i'm like a software guy at heart and a lot of the industrial engineering work at university wasn't really you know software it was basically you know business school for engineers which is great and fantastic but but i i'm a builder so eventually i i pivoted into computer science and there's a bunch of drama there. Yeah, and- it, it's it's an interesting thing because I think a lot of people wear that I dropped out with pride these days. You know, back and, and I think it kind of speaks to if you're a coder, if you're that's where if you're a data scientist, in a lot of ways you're like I'm doing it already. I, I know how to do it. Why am I paying you a hundred grand and taking away four years to, from my career when I can just get started? Yeah, and, and it's funny. I joke I joke about this to people all the time. I went to school, and uh, credentials are such a big thing. When I was uh, in, I was an automotive guy, and I didn't get my undergrad till I was thirty. And I remember as soon as I got my my un- undergrad, I got promoted. Like it was such a big, and I was like, "What did I just learn English?" And just was there magic dust thrown on me? I've been doing this job for a long time, but I didn't get promoted till I had the degree. And I always think we we've we've got a broken system. We need to fix that, but. Anyway, yeah. I mean, if you were to ask my parents, <laughs> no matter what I do in life, it's I, 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 it's always I need the degree because I mean, right. both of my parents are like you know multi degree holders, and it's just right. part of my culture. Right. So I remember I saw Bill Gates was on, uh, I think he was on Jay Leno or one of those old time talk shows, and Jay Leno said, "Just imagine how successful you'd be if you had graduated." <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, so just give us a few bullet points about your all these companies that you've been part of over the last ten years. Yeah, so so I guess I guess I've been pretty lucky in terms of just like following where where things took me. So so you know, years ago when I had moved to California, I was staying at this hacker house, right? And uh, a bunch of my friends in this hacker house, hacker hostel, they had their bikes get stolen, and so me being you know the engineering person that I am, you know, I built a little low jack thing to track bikes. And that turned out to be a nightmare because no one actually, people who have expensive bikes aren't going to be leaving them outside and people who have shitty bikes, you know, aren't going to spend any money to have them tracked. So that went nowhere, but I had studied industrial engineering. I had learned a little bit about supply chain at the time. And so I realized, oh, hey, shipping containers being stolen was a huge problem. So I repurposed oh that. Oh my tech. God, they're, they're everywhere. I, I live out kind of in a semi-rural area. The suburbs are cool. Qu- quickly gaining ground out here. Sure. But it's amazing how many times I, I, I go somewhere and I go, hey, what's that shipping container doing here? Oh, we're just using it for storage. I go, somebody owns that, you know. <laughs> they go, oh, I think they gave it to us. I was like, they didn't give it to you. <laughs> yeah, I, you would be surprised about how few people, like, know actually what's going on inside of their supply chains. Like, the shipping lines are, are probably the worst of the worst when it comes to all of that. Just because, like, they're not economically incentivized to actually know. Because they pass all the cost on to their customers, and anytime there's there's you know opacity in the supply chain, it's another opportunity for you know the the carriers to make more money, the forwarders to make more money. So give us get give us a few of those those startups you did, and sure. uh, and, and and then 
bring us up to speed where you're at today with Fushtail, your latest venture. Of course, of course. So, so, so we started out trucking bikes, then moved to shipping containers, and then we realized that this industry had a huge problem shipping air around the world because no yep, one knew where their container was. Still does. And but the problem was, you know, none of the big shipping lines actually really cared because they, they bundle that cost with the cost of doing business. So, you know, you and I pay for the cost of repositioning those containers. And so, so we pivoted again because we had all this information about the movement of vessels. And so we started to make predictions about the throughput capacity and congestion for every port in the world because we had a hypothesis around, you know, helping the tankers and commodities people basically figure out how to best position their vessels. Because it turns out that like Valero, they don't actually own most of their own fleet. They'll rent them for certain times. Who's, who's Valero? Valero, uh, they're like Chevron. They're a big oil Okay. Yep. Oh, I've seen that. Yep. Yeah. So, so the people that are operating the ships are going to go as slow as possible to conserve fuel, and they'll optimize to to arrive on the last day of the rental. And by the time they get to the port, there will be no space to to offload, and someone's got to pay for that extra time. And that ends up being Valero to the tune of something like fifty to one hundred thousand dollars a day per ship, which ends up costing like eighty million dollars a year. In just late fees. So, so we ended up solving this problem for, for a couple folks. And then we realized, oh shit, you know, we're, we're tracking all these, you know, these ships. We know what's, what's on them. We know what's going to happen to the markets. And so we started making predictions about the commodities markets based on the movement of these vessels. And then eventually we sold that, that business. And so that was, that was my first exit. What was the first? What's the next one? Uh, the next one. Uh, so we, we had, we started out as an IoT company for, for, for that, that last one, and we had signed a bunch of deals with like Anheuser-Busch and a bunch of big brands because we had this this tech that was relatively inexpensive at the time. I mean, I think an IoT device cost like hundreds of dollars, and we were selling them for, you know, 30, which was, you know, even now still relatively inexpensive. And those are just sensors, right? Yeah, those are GPS, GSM, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, environmental stuff. And so we had signed a contract with Anheuser-Busch, and eventually we became the global preferred vendor for anything that had to do with IoT. That, when you say IoT, that's the Internet of Things, right? Correct. Yes, yes. So, so I, like, the sensor world, you know, goes goes deep in my in my blood. I, I feel like everything I've done has some sort of, you know, IoT-ness to it. So Anheuser-Busch had this problem where they had 300,000 pallets, these things that are, are floating around and, and, and they didn't know where they were and they were losing 13% of them every year. Wow. And, and these weren't the cheap wooden pallets. These were expensive pallets. You know, you're talking about 50, 50 bucks a pop. And so like the problem itself isn't super huge, but it was a big enough problem that, you know, they wanted to spend money to, to solve it. And so me and some buddies basically figured out how to make some super cheap IOT devices so you can actually stick them onto a pallet and when the pallet costs 50 bucks, you know, the economics really only work if the device is super cheap. Right. So right. so we figured out how to do that. And, and you know, that ended up being kind of some of our, our early tech right. in the next company. This is a company called Odin. Well, you know, it's one thing that before we get off the topic of IoT, and again, I know you're the sensor guy. One of the ways I always think about Internet of Things is... We have this digital world that we that we all are familiar with. We live in it most of the day, and then we have the physical world. and the And the problem is they're disconnected. I look at the Internet of Things as what connects those the digital to the the physical, and that's what we need. And so, I mean, and I think we all see like I, I just somebody just told me RFID has come down really low in price. There'll be another 
podcast. Eventually, when we throw all those groceries in our, our cart, we'll walk out of the store and it'll say, that's $85, Joe. And it'll come out of my card. And when a truck pulls up and you unload it, all of those, you know, once we have those RFIDs on those products, it'll just say, it'll say, yeah, received. And that's that's the beginning of the blockchain. It's the beginning of so many great things. So when you talk about the, the Internet of Things, I, I, I don't want it to be abstract to anybody. <laughs> I think it's the one of the most exciting things what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically, from my perspective, it's one of the, like, the core indivisible pieces of truth in the global supply chain. I mean, otherwise, you have to you know, ask people about stuff. I mean, this is a huge problem across the industry in, right. in the world of, of like finance, even. Like HSBC literally has people calling up ship captains and customs brokers and, and all this other stuff. So, so there's, there's huge implications across many verticals. And I, I see we're going to get to a place, and it won't be forever, it'll be soon, where if I'm shipping something to you and I say, I'm shipping 100 of something to you. And as soon as those are received in your facility, it triggers a payment from you to me. And and that whole idea of you calling me the next day and saying, I didn't count them yet. I don't know if they're all here. All that stuff that we've kind of, you know, and I remember supporting in logistics factories where they'd say, it has to be here on this day. We get it there that day. And then like two days later, they call and go, Joe, I told you it had to be here. I said, it, it is there. And then they'd say, we didn't get it. And I said, and then I'd go to my guys, hey, could you get the proof of delivery? And they're like, I'll call the trucking company. <laughs> right? and, 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 and we started attaching it in the TMS, but it was not an instant thing. And so, so here it is, you know, that two, three days lag on it. Yeah. And the Internet of Things gives us that and those sensors that you – nerds, I say that nicely, <laughs> are, are, are making, are, are going to enable that. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's just a matter of time. It's all about unit economics and value. Like that, that to me has always been the biggest problem with, with IoT is it's always been too it's expensive. Too expensive, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's like, it's like if, you, if, if the sensor costs a hundred bucks and the product costs five, wrong way to, wrong way to go. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and and by the way, I just was interviewing the guys from Tive. Yeah, um, and they are doing some very cool. Yeah, and I love what they're doing over there because it's that same, but they've they've got that sensor that is doing all the things we wanted to do, and especially when it comes to food or to pharma, where they're able to to track something that is very high value or servers for relatively inexpensive. And given how much trucks are costing these days, the cost of that sensor feels very inexpensive. It's the size of a deck of cards. And, and and it doesn't just tell you where it's at. It tells you did it did you hit a big bump? Did it fall off a shelf? Was it too hot? Was it too cold? Was it too humid? All the stuff I want to know. Yeah, I mean the type people have done some really creative things around like cost engineering and and you know signal amplification and all sorts of stuff to make that battery life last forever. I, I huge amount of respect to Kronar and his crew. Very cool stuff. Yeah. Oh, they're another Boston people like you. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and funny, funny enough, my my old chief operating officer at Weft, I think, is on his advisory board. But I, I I think there's a lot of like overlapping. I'll put I'll put a link if for those of you who are interested. I'll put a link to Tive's uh, the podcast I did with Kronar, the founder, because I think it's very interesting and related to what we're talking about. But anyway, continue on in your journey here of IoT Trucking stuff. Talents. Yeah. So 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 we we had done this thing for Anheuser Busch. And eventually kind of, I guess, word started getting out about the stuff that we were doing. Because, I mean, if you've got a $50 pallet and you're able to track it at scale, 
you know, there's all sorts of other interesting applications for that. And so we started talking with, with, you know, more and more CPG companies, consumer packaged goods companies. And eventually we realized that, you know, the pallet itself was super interesting to know where it was, but it was really about the goods on the pallet that started to get really interesting. So uh, we started to, 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 to work with some CPG companies to start mapping out their supply network. And, and if you're someone like Procter & Gamble or Colgate-Palmolive, like one of these big CPG companies, like while the value of the goods themselves might not be very high, they're doing such volume and they've got right. so much inventory in their network that there's all of these additional costs that are associated with it. You've got, you know, the cost of putting something in a warehouse. You've got the cost of tying up that, that cash. You've got, you know, spoilage issues. And, and, and so, so the net effect of having inventory for someone like PNG and Colgate is easily, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a day for every day that inventory is in the network. Cause you got to make sure that, you know, you, you, Walmart has enough inventory in their supply network so that they don't have any out of, out of stock. So if you're a consumer and you go to a Walmart, you know, PNG wants to make sure that there's always a PNG product because Walmart will very easily give that shelf space to Colgate in a competing, you know, skew, skew level. And so, we had this data about the movement of these pallets and then we realized that we could start tracking the things on top of them. And, and, and the dot on the map stuff was, was great and fine and dandy, but it didn't become valuable for our customers until we started analyzing, you know, how that inventory was moving across the, the network. And so, so we were tracking stuff from the minute it left the line at the where at the manufacturing plant through the mixing facility where you've all these SKUs coming together that eventually went to Walmart that then broke those those packages down into other, you know, stores. And so we were tracking from end to end, basically up until the retail facility. We wanted to get even farther downstream until the point of sale, but that's, you know, a conversation for another time. And we were just helping, you know, plan production schedules with that data. And for those of you who don't who might be in, you know, purely on the logistics side, just remember when we're talking about inventory, it always just sounds like, well, that's what we move. But Carrying too much inventory means I've got too much money caught up in inventory and I'm and it's carrying costs. And that's money I can't spend on making new stuff. And when we went just through COVID here, the, the, we, we saw sometimes we didn't have enough inventory. So the knee-jerk reaction is just get more inventory. So from now on, we'll have six months inventory. When you start to do the math on six months inventory over, say, three months, it's enormous and so the name of the game is to have the right amount of inventory available. That is the never-ending challenge, right? And so I think we're going to get better and better and better at this. But I think one of the big value adds that logistics and transportation, warehousing, and all the technologies associated with it can add is help people manage their inventory. And, and that starts with understanding what are we selling? And I think, you know, we hear, when you hear skew rationalization, they're talking about how do we better manage that inventory? And it's, a, it's an age-old problem, but I think we're becoming more and more aware of it. And by the way, we mentioned Walmart. Walmart's always done a fantastic job of that. And that's why they're Walmart. The companies that are really successful are really good at inventory. And uh, the ones that go away are the ones that uh, got sloppy. And it's and it's not neat. It, it's 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 one of those things that's always been sort of uh, one guy gets it and he can come in and tell you, hey, you're carrying too much inventory. It's it's been black magic for a long time. We talked before we hit record about throughput, 
and uh, throughput solves that problem. And I look at it as kind of a black box solution. You put that stuff in, they do their magic, and they sh- sh- give you recommendations on how much inventory to hold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and and inventory and transportation like do play hand in hand a lot because I mean, really, if you think of transportation as like an extension of the warehouse, because like. If you're owning the inventory and the inventory is moving throughout the world, like it's effectively like it's in a virtual warehouse. So, so from that perspective, you want to make sure that you're optimizing, you know, your transportation so that you're moving at the right cost in the right way. Cause I mean, if you're shipping something trans Pacific over a boat, there might even be a two to four week variability during certain parts of the year. And so you need to be able to keep that kind of information in mind as you're planning your production schedules because like everything connects in the supply chain. Yep, I, I interrupted you and we got off on a tangent. So give me a few more of those companies you started before we uh, talk about Fishtail. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so there was the, the, the Weft, which was container trackers that turned into, into commodities. And then there was Odin, which was, you know, pallet trackers, which turned into inventory analysis. Eventually, we we ended up working with a bunch of the big CPG brands, and then we got acquired by another logistics company called Turvo. That, that's a good company to get bought by. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was a fun one. Great, great folks. Great tech. We we came from the world of of, of shippers and cargo owners. Turvo was mostly focused on freight brokers at the time, and so there was a lot of interesting like intersection in you know how we saw the world and and a, a lot of our our cargo owners happened to have a lot of their own semi brokerage operations so so it turned it it turned into some really interesting i hate this word synergistic opportunities i love what they're doing over there because they've got that they've got the new the new i'll call the modern tms and you know that it used to be do you have a tms that was good enough one or the other but th- their ability to kind of connect end to end is Exactly what what shippers need, exactly what freight brokers need. So what was after that? So after that, I ended up leaving about a year in to to help a Chinese family office do some private equity work. And so this is a real estate family and they were super interested in, you know, bringing tech into China. And eventually, you know, we we got to the point where we were building manufacturing plants and doing stuff in printed electronics. So like RFID tags, like a lot of the core infrastructure that would enable you to print RFID tags on demand, you know, this company now is, is, you know, in 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 possession of and so so did that for some time covid got complicated and it just <laughs> right. wasn't wasn't worth it and now, and now during covid you were supposed to move to germany you told me but then yes. you ended up and you were in boston and now you're in providence how'd you end up in providence so i i grew up going to summer camp in uh in rhode island and you know i i have fond memories of of rhode island so just was a, a whim one day. I didn't need to be anywhere. Like I had no idea how long the pandemic was going to last. And so why, why be in Boston if you can't do anything? I might as well be in, you know, Rhode Island where I can't do anything, but you know, at least I'm exploring a new area. So I have this, I have this problem where I, I get wanderlust if I sit in one place for two Yeah. Hours. I was going to say you're, you're, yeah, you've got, uh, you got that wanderlust for sure. Yeah. So when and why did you start Fishtail? So, huh, back when I was doing this, the container tracking stuff back in, in the WEF days, so we, we had signed a bunch of contracts with big shipping lines where we had like 300,000 unit orders and like we couldn't afford to, to get that stuff manufactured. So, so we went to a bunch of financial institutions to say, hey, you know, factoring company X, will you finance this? And it turns out like, broadly speaking, no one 
was going to simply because no one knew who we were. No one knew what our supply chain looked like. And so unless we had an invoice, which is kind of the, the like what happens after the delivery of the product, no one was going to give us money. And so, so we ended up in front of HSBC and, 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 you know, they also didn't want to give us money, but we got to the point where, where they saw the tech that we were building as a mechanism to decrease the cost of doing business for their trade financing operations. Because it turns out supply chain visibility and trade finance kind of, you know, intersect in a lot of different points. So, so HSBC, I think at the time, it, unless you were generating $300,000 of net new revenue, you were never going to get any money from them just because they literally had teams of people literally calling up ship captains and customs brokers just to figure out where stuff was. And so, so they saw our tech, our visibility platform as a mechanism to, you know, automate a lot of that process. And we ended up getting acquired before before we, we ended up doing any work with them. But the diligence process was super deep. They were going to be co-leading around between them and, and a couple of other folks. And it just timing timing didn't work. So what problem do you guys solve? So you've circled back to this problem is what it comes down yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. I've been this this thing has been in my brain for you know ten to fifteen years. Because to me, there's always this intersection of like supply chain and working capital. Because like if you're moving things through the world, there is a financial cost associated with it. And so so you know, after after the turbo stuff and I also spent a little bit of time helping some friends spin out a, a company called Green Screens uh, out of out of, oh, out of yeah. vestigial world. So I am I am very friendly with, with that group. But but after after you know I left that the Chinese family office, I, I wanted to get back to my roots, which is kind of this intersection of, you know, supply chain and finance. And and uh, that's basically where where Fishtail came from. so what problem would you, so let's just say I'm, 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 so do you solve problems for manufacturers or do you solve problems for logistics companies? So the problem with trade finance is that it is so multi-party that we, we solve a lot of problems for different stakeholders in the ecosystem. The, the way that that manifests in the market is that we are able to finance purchase orders which is something that, broadly speaking, the trade finance industry is unable to do. And that's just because the, the financial industries don't understand supply chain. So they don't know whether or not the purchase order is going to actually ever convert into an invoice. And so the, the use case that we always talk about when we're looking at this world is like, let's say I'm LaCroix, right? LaCroix gets, they're, they're the seltzer company. Yep. LaCroix gets an order from Walmart. Walmart says, hey, I want $100,000 of seltzer. LaCroix has got to go spend the money on, you know, the water, on the aluminum, on the processing, on all this stuff to actually get the product made. And then they have to ship the product to Walmart. And then Walmart doesn't pay for another 120 days. So it's easily 150 days that, you know, LaCroix doesn't go with money and they have to spend money to actually make this stuff happen. And so when people are talking about trade finance and factoring, they're usually talking about the leg of like once the product is already at Walmart and Walmart has said, you know, I'm going to pay you in 120 days. Like that's the leg that people are interested yeah. in. So that's factoring. I, when I you sell an invoice, and so like if I had a $100,000 invoice, I could go to a factoring company and say, Walmart owes me this much. And they'll say, Joe, we'll give you 80 grand for that. And when they pay us, we'll give you the rest. And that rest is uh, never as much as you think it should be. Oh, yeah. It's it's like, it's a very high way to in, in borrow. But when we were prepping, I said, factoring is a horrible thing if you have, uh, you know, in terms of uh, borrowing. But it's the difference between staying in business and, and going out of business for a lot of companies. So 
Um, and trucking, a lot of trucking companies obviously do factoring. And, you know, it, it, for small numbers, you go, see, yeah, all right, I paid 100 bucks for that or 200 bucks. I didn't want to, but I also wanted to buy gas for my next load. So, so what, right? It, it's, you don't want to get addicted to it. I, I joke about, I joked about it with you when we were prepping is that I did some factoring of invoices back when I was young. And I remember my, it was my dad's company. And I remember we were celebrating one minute and then we did the math. <laughs> and then we were like, yeah, yeah. All right, the good news is we made payroll. The bad news is, man, oh man, did we pay a lot for that money? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of factoring companies out there that like will charge an arm and a leg just for like the privilege of getting paid. I get it though. Yeah. We, we are not it. in that it's, camp. Again, it's a, uh, <laughs> cause, cause right. we, we so tend you to guys are different. Yes, we we are different because we we aren't we we don't charge usury rates. Like we want to make sure that the businesses that we're financing can like afford the financing that we're we're doing, and we finance much much earlier in the chain than than these companies are traditionally able to do. So we will finance once the purchase order has been cut, because our we've got a bunch of data folks and you know nerds like me that are sitting in the back crunching the numbers to predict the likelihood that Lacroix is actually going to turn that purchase order into an invoice. And so we we basically track every international transaction that has ever happened everywhere. And then we use a bunch of math to predict whether or not a manufacturer has enough materials to make it happen, figure out whether or not there's going to be a supply chain disruption, figure out like all of this stuff just so that we can advance cash. So are you a financial institution or are you a tech company? I mean, that sounds a lot like a million dollar question. You're a fintech. fintech. Yes, yes, yes. I I would argue that we are a tech company for a bunch of reasons, but, but that's why they came up with fintech. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But another thing that makes us unique is, is that, you know, we generally work with logistics companies to go to market. So, so we, we never actually lend money directly to our borrowers. We never give money to LaCroix. We work with their logistics companies to enable them to provide lending to their customers. And that manifests itself in, in one of two ways. We either enable freight forwarders or freight brokers to finance their invoices. So, so Maersk, you know, carrier X will want to get paid immediately. We will factor the invoice that the forwarder or the broker is giving to their customer so that the carrier can get paid immediately, or we will enable them to finance the goods for their customers, depending on. So potentially, if I'm a, a freight broker, um, I, I have now maybe a, a new competitive advantage if I'm working with you. If I'm yes. working with Fishtail, I can offer. Net terms. I can, wor- I can offer terms that I couldn't previously offer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, we see and a so lot they, of companies. Potentially, that gives me an advantage. So if I said, look, when you work with me, we're not just your freight broker. We're also your fintech partner. Exactly, exactly. And so so a lot of large, you know, transportation companies are, are able to offer, you know, net terms just because they have the cash to do so. And so, so we generally work with much smaller transportation companies. We work with, you know, folks that are actually moving a huge amount of volume. And, and our premise is that like, why should the big guys be able to do, you know, all of this financial engineering, we should enable, you know, everybody else to do that as well. And so we tend to work with smaller brokers, smaller forwarders, smaller logistics companies to, to kind of make that liquidity happen. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. This is a, a very unique service offering. And I've said this lately on my podcast, when visibility kind of became important in the last three, four years, it, it was the killer app. You mentioned green screens and the dynamic, they do dynamic pricing. I think that's 
a killer app. That's that that is going to be either you're doing it or you're not playing anymore. Yeah, that that's one of the core indivisible pieces of supply chain data that I think is overlooked. But I'm a little biased. It's the haves or the have. This is going to be a have or have nots in my mind. I I just met with Tomorrow IO. They were on my podcast. They do that weather intelligence. I look at the same thing as you say. Why would why don't we do this? Why aren't we getting to this? Why aren't we get making better decisions on the weather? Right? Because we have a lot of twenty five percent of our delays, twenty five percent of our accidents. This is one more of those. I, I we're, I'm just hearing about it now. So this sounds like one of those next killer apps, in that some companies are going to be able to offer this, and some others aren't. And you know what's interesting? I'll, I'll end my tangent after this. Is it felt for a long time that a freight broker was a freight broker was a freight broker. They all would say things like, we have integrity and we have customer service. And when you call us, we'll get you a truck. We have a network of fill in the blank, 20,000, 15,000, 18,000, 40,000 trucks. To a shipper, it, I think it all sounded the same. And now we're, what we're seeing though is so many companies like yours are giving brokers and 3PLs a competitive advantage that they didn't have. And I, I again, you talked about it leveling the playing field between the big guys can do this without your help. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the future for service providers in the world of logistics is basically all about differentiation and service and all this other stuff. Like there's, there's some great companies out there like ISO. I don't know if you're familiar with them, uh, but they're basically doing uh, collaborative logistics performance so they're basically making sure that the right people are getting yelled at when shit goes wrong i mean that's a super dumbed down version of, of what it is oh yeah doing. They, iso just came out with a list of like i think it was a, their their goal was to, was to say here is an objective here's an objective list of the very best logistics companies mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was interesting I, I found it and i th- i sent it to a few people who were on that list load smart was on that list and i yeah. sent them and i said what do you know about this and they said uh not much <laughs> so yeah yeah the, the, the iso guys are super we'll smart. be hearing more about iso soon yeah i I'm, I'm also a big fan of of what they're doing but 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 you know suffice it to say that as a logistics company, like you have your area that you're really good at. You can compete on price, on performance, on, you know, having capacity that no one else has. And I think, you know, as, as tech gets more and more mature, there's going to be more of this leveling in, in the playing fields. And, and, you know, if you're an arbiter of data, you're in a good spot. So, so walk us through a, a scenario. You were giving us the example of LaCroix before, but let's just say, let's just, I'll, I'll make myself the guinea pig here. So, Let's just say I just started a company here and I'm in Michigan and I want to sell furniture and I want to sell some of it online. And I, I also want to sell it th- to some some stores as I find them, the right so, stores. So right now we don't really do a whole lot of e-commerce just because it's a completely different model. But look, yep. assuming you're, you're a furniture company, you get an order from Target, you get an order from... I don't know who makes furniture, but someone who makes furniture, we will basically take that purchase order, give you the cash that you need to actually get it made, and then that's it. So so, so, so I'm working with them, and I can kind of say I might not have bank bank financing, which, which is crazy because I'm talking to Target, and I'm talking to them, and they say, yeah, Joe, we'd like a uh, like million dollars worth of this. And I say, okay, that my costs are going to be $600,000. And I have half of that. I have 300 grand. So when I go to you and I say, here it is, 
Mark, I've got a PO and it is worth a uh, million bucks and I have 300. I need another 300. Yeah. What do you and do? And we'll give you the cash. I mean, it's it's a pretty simple thing. I mean, now, granted. Where you, now, where do you get the cash? So we work with a, a bunch of financial institutions to enable kind of the connection of the two worlds, which is where like we're kind of a tech company and we're kind of a finance company. So, so we have investors basically that give us money to give you money. So now that in that scenario, I'm a, I'm a manufacturer. I went right to you. Now let's go another scenario where there's a logistics company involved. How does that work with that? It's a very similar similar use case. You know, I'm a I'm a logistics company. I'm moving stuff from point A to point B, but my customers are asking me for net payment terms. Very very simple option. We integrate with the TMS so that as a logistics provider, if you know, I, I can click a button, invoice my customer, and the customer gets the option of of getting net terms directly in the invoicing flow. And then we also behind the scenes handle collections. We handle you know all of the the financial workflow. Now let's just say so that you give the logistics company the ability to offer terms where they couldn't before. It's still our money. It's still our tech. But the logistics company is is effectively able to add an additional you know, level of service, which is offering these net terms, but they can also make money on the financing. So we, we share the revenue that we make. So, so could they lend me that manufacturer? Could they lend me that money? Yes. 300 grand. I need to finish up these deals. Yep. For yep. yep. Cause our, our hypothesis is that like you, you've already got your, your relationships with these logistics companies. Like why would I try to insert myself? So if we can enable your logistics partner to move your goods and be a financial financial party of your transaction, then I think everybody will. Wow. So now, yeah, and again, I think what, what, what we kind of said along the way, we're seeing more and more, we see more and more uh, transactions automated. And we as in the, you know, anybody who's in the intermediary is trying to, to add value. But over time, it's going to be harder and harder to say, I did anything. There was no heavy lifting because I had a system that connected the the truck to the load. And so what am I doing? And what we, well, a lot of what we talked about is we're going to do more data insights. We're going to, we're going to add values and different value to the shipper in different ways. I think this is one of those ways we're going to become trade specialists. Yeah. I, I, Some, I 100% somewhere. agree. <laughs> I think the forward thinking ones that, that, you know, want to continue growing will definitely get into that space. I mean, we see this all the time. We see companies start off relatively small and then, you know, over time they, they, they grow because they have the working capital they need to take bigger orders, to work with more customers, to like take the risks that they weren't traditionally able to do. And so we kind of help by enabling that financing to happen. Yep. That's fantastic. So now are you are are you up and running? You guys yeah, are Yeah, yeah, we're doing financing this? stuff all over the world with companies big and small. I mean, we finance transactions as small as like I think the smallest transaction we've done so far is like a thousand bucks. The biggest is something like two million. So like we span the gamut. We don't care about where our customers are, we don't care about what industry they're in, we'll do it all. It's a, it's an interest it's an interesting way to to get money and the reason I, th- I throw that out there is um you know I'm here in Detroit there's a lot of companies that have a lot of equipment and a lot of facilities and as uh, you know we had these up ups and downs here a lot of times they would fund stuff say hey look you have no you have zero on your balance sheet <laughs> well not zero but you have all these machines you have all the, you have millions of dollars worth of stuff I'll lend you money on that stuff. And we have factoring. We've so we we've we've over time 
keep getting better and better at coming up with money. So it, it, it's not just the haves and the have nots. When you, if you if you've got uh, if you got a will, there's this is the way. So let me ask you this: Are you doing more with logistics companies or more directly with like manufacturers and sellers? So about half of our volume, it's split 50-50. Half of our volume is coming directly from the logistics companies. And then half of the, the volume that we're lending comes directly from the, the, the shippers. Granted, like all of that's coming through the forwarders, but like in terms of, of the breakdown of where that money is going, half is going forwarders, half is going to the customers. So, so let me ask you this. So let's just say I, I'm a logistics company and I say, you know what? I'm always looking for a way to be more competitive and I'm doing some freight brokerage here. And uh, I call you guys and say, hey, I'd like to, I, I'd like to offer terms for some, of the, for some of the companies I'm working with that, that need it. Am I taking the risk or are you taking the risk on, on those terms? We, we take the risk. Now, what about the money? Let's just say when we make some money, am I, uh, am I getting paid? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, <laughs> we share the money with the, 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 the forwarders. So am I, my, my finder's fee or a percentage of it? How is this? Yeah, work? it's structured as a revenue share. So, so you get a good, a good chunk. I love it. I love it. Again, I think it's just another way to add value to your customers. And again, the, we're going to find ourselves as third-party logistics company and freight brokers, especially over in the over-the-road stuff. I think more and more stuff becomes automated. We're going to have to find new ways to add value. And perhaps this is one of them. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. So do you work mostly, do you work also with freight forwarders and freight brokers, 3PLs, all of all? all intermediaries? Yeah, we tend to specialize in intermediaries. So we don't do a whole lot of work directly with carriers right now. But you know, freight brokers, great. Freight forwarders, great. You know, 3PLs, fantastic. Because for, for us, logistically, they are very similar to the kinds of companies that we, we tend to finance on the cargo owner side. Because they're, they're, they're really the intermediaries. Like LaCroix, like they might be a manufacturer of product, but odds are they're probably working with a contract manufacturer. It's very similar with you know, a lot of the, the, the 3PLs that we work with or, or LSPs that we work with, you know, they might be moving goods, but it might not be on their metal. So that's fantastic. So let's switch gears a little bit. But where's your company located? I know you're in Providence. Yeah. Are you guys are all remote? 100% remote. We're all over the place. I've got folks in California, Washington, Montana, Toronto, Lithuania, Estonia, India, Hong Kong. Like we're in every time zone, which is kind of a nightmare, but it's the you know twenty first century now. <laughs> yeah, and so are you? Is your team data guys, tech guys, or are they finance guys, or what's the split? There? It's a smattering of of all of the above. We got a bunch of finance people on the team. We've got a bunch of tech people on the team. Yeah, we're 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 just a bunch of data guys. So did you go get VC funding for this and started as a tech company and then reach out to these finance companies separately, or was it the finance company saying we will support you in this and? So, I mean, it, it helps to come from the industry a little bit. So, so, so we, we did have some relationships in the back pocket, but, but it, it, we built the tech and then we, we had some, some friends. Good, good. So it, it's not, it's not the traditional VC backed tech. So we, we did actually raise money. Uh, so our, our main investor, uh, his name is Ryan McKillen. He was Uber employee number three. He's got a venture firm. Is that a good job? <laughs> I, I, I think so. I think he's uh, he's done some really cool stuff over the years. But but he he's kind of our main investor with the fund called Thursday Ventures, and you know we 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 you know 
took other money from, you know, Uber's former, you know, head of data science. He's got a fund called Rackhouse. We were working with, you know, Amex's former chief data officer. He's got a fund now called Amara. These are some good partners. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to have, I mean, obviously you've got a background in it and obviously your finance partners, they know what they're doing, but it's also nice that you're, 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 with tech royalty there, <laughs> so yeah, I mean we are we we also lucked out and 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 we are very friendly with the the, the P forty four guys. So Jet and Jason are both on our cap table as well, and like, oh, we've got a bunch nice. of other folks nice. in, in in that world. Jet is supposed to be on my damn podcast and said yes, but it's still not here yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, I, I I understand he's been a busy man, <laughs> so. Just slowly taking over the world, one one logistics yes, company. Yes, at a time. exactly, yeah. exactly. So, um, tell us tell, tell us a little bit about this. What have you learned about, about? About I mean, you've been in a number of these startups, and and you've always been in supply chain or in logistics or and and now finance. What have you learned about growing a company, starting a company oh, and wow. growing it? And I know you've exited some. So, give us some lessons because I mean, I, I think a lot of us listen to stories like yours and go. Damn, I want to be Mark when I grow up. <laughs> I, I, I think the 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 your first assumption is always wrong. Like no matter who you are, whatever you're doing, I mean, unless you're magic and like you innately understand. I mean, the business magic. you think you're going to be in is yes, always wrong. It's always wrong. Yeah, uh, this least... podcast started as digital marketing, and uh, oh no content. shit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think as long as you follow what your customers are saying, you're you're going to be fine. But I think if you try to build something and then you know, eventually try to sell it to people, I think it's a recipe for disaster. Because at the end of the day, if a product exists in the market and there's no one around to buy it, does it really matter? Yeah. So so the one thing you've learned along the way is obviously connection to the customer. But what about growing those? What about hiring and, and managing a team, especially a team like you have now that's spread out all over the place? I think right now we are in a relatively unique market from like a talent perspective. There's a bunch of really smart people out there. There's a bunch of people that, you know, don't necessarily want to live in the world of the status quo. But I think it's hard to find folks that share you know, exactly the same view of the world in the same physical location that you're in. So I think people that are trying to be 100%, you know, single location are, are doing themselves a disservice. I think hybrid, great, sure, but I think remote remote is where it's at. Granted, you lose a lot of culture in the remote first workplace, but there's there's a lot of things you can do to, you know, get around that. Yeah, I've, I, I, it's funny because I was just at a party, a, a friend's party the other night, and uh, <laughs> I had some friends who were, who were saying, yeah, I'm going to retire. And I was like, retire? And do what? Right? And, they, and they're too young to retire in my mind. And they're not, these guys are in their 50s. And I was thinking, and do, do what? I don't, I don't understand. And, and I was thinking to myself is what they're more than anything, they're tired of what they're doing. So they, so they're of that age and they have enough money and they say, I'm just gonna be done. And so I've always kind of thought like, there are lots of young parents who say, I don't want to work 40 hours. I don't want to work 50 hours, but I'm good for 25. And I think there's also guys who are guys and gals who might be, uh, I got kids and they're busy, busy schedules. I want to work 25 hours a week. And I, and I think there's going to be retirees, people, the baby boomers. We are, I'm one of the youngest baby boomers. We aren't going away. We've got nowhere to go. So I keep thinking we're going to get more flexible about that, about how we 
it's it's I joke about this all the time. So somewhere, who knows when, they came up with forty hour work weeks, and they said, and then you get two weeks or three weeks vacation. We've we've changed everything since then, except the forty hour work week, which is kind of still the standard. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. nothing matters anymore. <laughs> I, I think I think well, it's interesting. To- so, yeah, when I was your age, I went to a job at the Beehive, and that's why I was called. Um, Product development in automotive is the beehive. You got to go there. We had to be co-located. There was no remote connections, right? And we wore shirts and ties because otherwise we'd be unprofessional. We had to wear hard shoes. <laughs> we had to get there. We had to get there really early and stay stay at least till five or six. And I keep thinking that that is um, a model that my kids and your generation just look. I don't want that, and I I don't want it. I don't want it for myself. So. It's interesting. It's interesting what you've uh, developed. So I want to ask you a question here, and then we'll wrap this bad boy up. So you answer it in any order. So this is a brand new kind of space. So I want to hear what's next for this space that you're talking about, this fintech as it enters in logistics and supply chain. What's next for this space? What's next for Fishtail? And what's next for you? Shit, that's a, those are great questions. Uh, I wish I was, you know, smart enough and had enough foresight to like give you a great answer. But I, I mean, give me a good answer. <laughs> I, I can try. I can try. Yeah. I think in 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 the world of 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 you know trade finance, I think I think there are a lot of problems that people aren't looking at. So trade finance is huge. It's this industry that like no one gives a shit about. But there's something like seventeen trillion dollars a year of volume that moves through the industry. Huge, huge space. And there's this white space in the middle of, of about $2 trillion a year of unmet demand. And this is people, you know, small businesses, this is people in emerging markets, this is like the people who can't get financed for any reason. There are a lot of different tools to solve this working capital problem. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in novel forms of getting people money in ways that make sense for them. I mean, a lot of a lot of financial institutions are limited in, you know, their jurisdictional reach like HSBC. They're really only going to finance things where they have a physical presence. You know, Bank of America, they're only going to finance things where they have physical presence. And then you've got, you know, commodities versus things that are containerized versus, you know, inventory versus invoices. Like there's there's all of these different permutations of stuff. And I think just mapping out the industry over the years there's going to be a lot of innovation in some of the core infrastructural technology that enables financing to happen at scale for people who need it. I think that's going to manifest itself in all sorts of different tech. I, I know there's people doing, you know, letters of credit on the blockchain. I know there's, you know, IBM and all this, you know, crypto stuff people are poking around at, you know, making sure that people have the information they need to actually do the lending. So I think, I think, you know, the next five years are going to be interesting. I think, well, and I think what we're talking about is fintech, right? I think I had the guys from Melio on my podcast, which just it's, and I'm, I'm going to talk to some other payment people. And what's interesting is how long payments still take, and so that's a fintech thing. And I think somebody joked about it on my the Melio guys joked about it on my podcast. They said the number one question in logistics and supply chain is where's my stuff. The number two question is where's my money. Yeah, right? and so I think fintech is here. And it is starting to become part of freight tech. And I think be part of the supply chain services and closer. I think, you know, again, the the traditional model of I will get in my Sunday best and go to my local banker and ask him to fund this. And he says, no, 
before you get in the door because that's not what they do. That's gone. FinTech is set up differently. More likely, I'm not going to a physical location. I'm uh, applying online (laughs) and AI is making a decision probably that fast (laughs) and away we go. Yeah, I, I mentioned this to people on the podcast. I paid off one of my credit cards after a trip, came home, paid it off. And the next day I got like 40% increase in my credit line. I was like, I didn't ask for that. And then I was thinking 40%. And and then I was thinking about, and then a friend of mine said, a person didn't give you 40%. AI gave you 40%. A person would never give you 40% because they have a boss. AI's looks, and and by the way, they were right. I I still pay that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's that's the interesting thing we're running into with finance is it's coming out of the the olden days, just like freight is, and and it's starting to be. I don't want to say democratized, but it sounds kind of wild, wild west right now. I think there's just going to be a lot of people who are you know gunslingers and trying new stuff, and a lot of it's going to fail. But you know. There's some cool stuff going on for sure. So what's so what's next for your company and what's next for you? So I mean, we're 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 excited about the stuff that we're going to be announcing uh, over the next few months. So I, I I'm I'm excited to share with you guys some of the stuff that we're doing. I can't talk a whole lot about it. Well, that's why we got to all connect with you on LinkedIn. I'll put a, a link to your LinkedIn profile and a link to Fishtail so you can follow uh, both the company and Mark and uh, see what's going on in the future months here. I think I think uh, some of the stuff that we're we're looking at is going to enable us to lend to even smaller businesses, lend in early, uh, other markets that you know other folks can't touch. I think at the end of the year we're gonna you know we're gonna save the world with finance. So there's some some fun stuff going on. That's fantastic. So who is your sweet spot? Who who who? If you we, if you, we if, love if, small. If, if it was a, it was a perfect day today. Who would call you? <laughs> I, I I I love small forward thinking logistics people. Like that to me, like I, I love shooting the shit with, with, with folks that are, 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 are in that world. But I think there's a lot of things that we could do to, you know, provide liquidity for, 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 for the market together. So I, I, you know, if you're, if you're a small to medium logistics company, please, you know, hit, hit me up. We'll do some cool shit together. Excellent. So what conference are you heading to in the, this coming year? There is a conference that there's a couple of industry conferences that we go to for, for trade finance. There's one in, in the Netherlands in like November. There's one. You made in the, that one up just to get to the Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but who knows, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll make my way over to the, the future of, of supply chain, the freight waves thing. That's down in Northwest Arkansas. Oh, fun. I, I there's some great barbecue over there. I, I, I like it. They're, they're a cool spot. I remember when Arkansas was just Arkansas. Now it's Northwest Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, it's uh, fantastic what you're doing. And I really appreciate you coming on my podcast and talking about it. Thanks for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. And, and what I'll do is I'll put a, a, a few links. Any link you give me, I'll put in the show notes. And uh, for those of you who are listening, you can connect with uh, Mark and his team over on LinkedIn or on his website. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, Joe. Have a great rest of your day. And thank you for having me. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.